I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Were you aware that January is Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month? If you are interested in helping raise awareness on spiritual abuse, a great way to do that is to simply follow the hashtag Spiritual Abuse or Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month and reshare content that creators are already making. You can also hang out with us here on the podcast and reshare uncertain podcast episodes, as all of our episodes in January will have a connection to spiritual abuse. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from evangelical communities and home of the Uncertain Podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story slam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Early registration is currently open, so sign up now to take advantage of the early registration prices. Price increases on March 1st, so don't miss out. Sign up with the link in the show notes. Today's guests are Nikki G and Sarah Yaw. Nikki and Sarah are both my colleagues in the spiritual abuse recovery realm and work as trauma recovery coaches. I am grateful to call both of them friends. As we have been in conversation over the past few years, we have noticed a pattern in our own experiences with abusive church systems and cults. Our experiences overlap, we believe, because we all had experiences of abusive family dynamics in our families of origin. We decided to have this roundtable discussion to highlight how someone who grew up in an abusive home might interact with the experience of encountering an abusive church in adulthood. So this is just a roundtable discussion for all of us who have uh, abuse backgrounds in either from our family of origin or other. (laughs) And we are discussing how we then interacted with the church both because of that and then how the, when we discovered our church or community was abusive, how that then impacted us because of the abuse. I have just three questions that I wanted each of us to answer and there I'll probably ask some follow-up questions and feel free. Also, if you have a follow-up question for someone, feel free to jump in and ask those as well. But then, yeah, I just wanted to stick to those basically just three Three part, three parts episode of just what it's like to be from an abusive home and then also interact with the church, especially when that church becomes abusive. So how are, how is everyone feeling? I know this is a heavy topic. So how are we coming into this space today? Well, I don't know. Whenever I have to do something like this, I always feel a little nervous. Like I said, it's only my second time doing it. The first time I was on a podcast but someone does support people with Hashimoto's disease. So that, I think I was more nervous then because I don't know much about that, but she just wanted me to talk about trauma and autoimmune. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess I'm a little bit nervous also because I've, there's a lot of things about this I'm still processing, but I mean, I still feel equipped to talk about it. It's just so complicated, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, but that yeah. is a good, a good point. It's, this is a journey. And when you have that, you're already working through that experience from your upbringing. And then you add the church experience on top of it. It is complex. It will be complex. And there will likely, I have prepared myself that there likely will not be a complete resolution ever. And so that is a very good point and something 
for sure to keep in mind as we're, as we're talking, it's not about having this perfect answer and this is how you navigate the situation. It's, we all are in this together and this is what this experience is like. How are you coming into this space, Nikki? I'm doing good. Kind of thinking about this topic prior to us recording, I just, it's just my ache for the people who are in this right now and people who've come out of it and not been able to yet put the pieces of the puzzle together, but they're dealing with a lot of the pain and the hurt and the bewilderment, to be honest, of, okay, what did I just come out of as far as a spiritual, abusive, toxic church environment? And they're starting to unravel that. And then it's like, wait a minute. As I keep continuing to pull the thread, I'm seeing it goes further back beyond Mm -hmm. my, you know, religious experience. And then it's like, oh, I don't even want to touch that. And so I know there can be some apprehension even touching the topic, but just looking at the other side of it, how, how impactful it is for our recovery when we are able to, as I say, get some strength in our legs and stand up a bit and start to go down that corridor and open that door where there is a lot of developmental trauma from our upbringing and to see how they correlate, it really helps us on our recovery path. And so I'm coming in like excited to talk about the topic, even though it's sobering, but then there's a side of me that feels like, oh, my family is still alive and kicking and I'm just going to be open and honest. (laughs) You know, know, I mean, it has a whole nother weight to it when it's like that. I don't know if they'll eventually hear this or not, but I think coming into the the perspective of, you know, it's my truth. It's my experience. I didn't make this up, you know, I lived it and they may be in in a position in their lives where they disassociate themselves from it and act like it never happened. But I remember, and my inner child remembers, and the recovery I'm still in remembers. And so I think it's important in some way, shape, or form that we get a chance to speak on topics like this for our own recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope it is. I hope it is healing for us too to have this conversation. And it's already as as we're talking, I'm just like, it's just actually cool to just talk about this. That I've been excited to record this, and I've been wanting to record this with the two of you for a few months now. I've never heard an episode like this ever of like, how does growing up in an abusive home impact your experience with the church? And then especially when you find out that that church is abusive, that it does it does change the interaction. So I'm very excited to be able to talk about it with both of you. Thank you for your, your vulnerability, especially not knowing who in your family will potentially hear if they, if they <laughs> do, if they do. So thank you both for being here. First question that I would love for all of us to, to talk about this is, a, these are open-ended for a reason because I don't, I don't want to prescribe how anyone answers this. And I anticipate we're going to have different answers because we're different people. So first question is how did an abusive upbringing impact your experience of the church as a whole? What was your relationship with the church like in light of that abusive upbringing? How about I go first? Okay. (laughs) So the things that I was, I was sort of thinking about in related to this was, I know a lot of folks 
who come from abusive upbringings and then and then find a sort of surrogate family with a church end up developing a codependent relationship with the church and that church just fills this void and and it's and it, and it's very understandable because if i don't have the church then i have nothing because i lost my family or my family is unstable and cannot be the family that I need the family to be. I I think that that did not happen for me because I moved six times in the course of 10 years. So I did not have enough time to develop a codependent relationship with the church. Most of my relationship with the church was in a staff related position as I am pursuing a vocation of ministry. So that made it a little more complex because not only is this my family, air quotes, it's also my job and my vocation. And so I do remember thinking as I became, began to understand what I had gone through in my upbringing and began to name that as abuse. And, and, and then because of that, create more distance between myself and specifically my parents. And which has then led to now creating more distance between not just my parents, but then the wider extended family as well, because they're enabling and aiding and abetting an abuser and abusive people. I do remember thinking, oh, it's okay. I have the church. Like at least the church will be there. At least I will have this other family. I will have people I can call when I need help changing a tiger. I will have people who will be there for me. You know, if I have a baby, like they'll help me, they'll bring me food, you know, like I'll just, I'll always have this like safety net because I have the church. I remember thinking that very, very distinctly. And I did not have a category in my mind at all. Did not have any space in my mind whatsoever that there would ever be a time that I would not be connected to the church. Wasn't sure I would always be working for the church, but there was no category for me that I would not be connected to the church in some way, shape, or form capacity. So that is how abusive upbringing impacted my relationship with the church. I can jump in because I did kind of have that experience you talked about where I grew up in the abusive home and then went into church kind of thinking it was going to be the family I always wanted and kind of developing that codependent relationship. And in a lot of ways, I think it was sort of a trauma bond. And growing up for me, I didn't come from like a very churched background, I guess, like church was kind of ambivalent in my home. And I grew up Catholic in the South. So that was already kind of a little bit not normal for where I was living. And we didn't go to church my entire childhood, but from like as far back as I can have memories, I was very, very drawn by spiritual things, love church. It was a safe place, kind of like school. I was very, very devout and dedicated even when I was a, a little kid. And even when my family, my nuclear family stopped going to church, I found a friend that was Catholic and started going to church with her. And so it was just always something I was very bonded to. And then when I got to be an adult and started understanding more of the dynamics of my abusive family, I had very similar thoughts of like, okay, well, there's all this brokenness in my family relationship, but at least I have the church and I bonded to it really, really strongly. And all the family language that my church used, I internalized it very literally. Like I believed that to the core of who I was, that these people were my family 
that this was my family that was going to kind of take the place of my biological family. And even though I didn't have relationships there that they, like you said, they're going to be my safety net. And also like the same thing, I never ever imagined that I would not have the church in my life. And this one specific church, like we had oriented our entire life around it. We didn't move anywhere. It was how we evaluated every major decision. When I say we, I mean, me and my husband. So when I became an adult and got married and started our, my own family, I was like, this is our family and we're never going to leave. Like, and they're always going to be there for us. And so it was a pretty, it was a pretty strong bond there that I never thought would ever be broken. Yeah. And knowing that it was, makes it, makes it so much more painful. You're just like, I never, ever thought this would happen ever. Now I can relate to to both of your stories and uh, Catherine, I like how you, you phrase church, you know, fill in the void. Mm -hmm. It actually becomes, you know, our family. And I was just thinking, listening to both of you, like even the phrase church family for some, that can be kind of triggering depending on, you know, their experience. We merge them together and it almost is as if when people are in their, what I call church shopping phase, where they're looking to, you know, find a new church home, even the the terminology we use, church home, church family, we're often looking for the family, like all, you know, our inner child is like, yay, you know, will I find a place of peace? You know, and a lot of times what we're not always realizing is what we think we're looking for and what we actually choose sometimes are two different things, you know, at least from what is presented to us. Because as you well know, there is a, an image that's presented to us on the front end, but then once you get in, when you start seeing how things are, it just looks totally different. But can you unpack that a little bit more? What we're looking for is not always what we end up with. Is it because what, what I'm filling in the blank is like the churches know what we're looking for and they're like specifically targeting people like us. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? I think two things are happening at the same time. I think that is happening, right? So the toxic churches or toxic leaders, they're, I believe, constantly scanning for, you know, new people coming in and nervous systems are reading each other. You know what I mean? And, but on the, so that, that is going on, but simultaneously we're coming into it looking for, and a lot of times our unmet needs are actually doing the shopping. It's not always, you know, us doing our homework and going online and saying, okay, this seems to be a good church this leader seems to be doing this a lot of times it's can I get the validation that I didn't possibly receive when I was home will I get the love and the comfort will I find that camaraderie? all these things are natural and normal in a church family in any type of group setting and friendships it's normal but when both come together and we have that trauma that we didn't unpack coming in and you have the toxic leaders who are doing their toxic thing coming together, it just can be a little wonky, if mm. you will. And so um, needs are doing the shopping for us. That's a, that's quotable. I've never said that a day in my life, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it's true as a five cult survivor who church hopped and church shopped a lot. It took me a while for me to realize that that's what was going on. And I don't beat myself up for it. I, I really didn't know. I didn't understand because I was looking for a church family and I was looking for spiritual parents. And that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But, but 
I grew up in church all my life since I was little, you know, it's like, you don't have a choice. And being an African-American woman in our culture, it's like an expected thing. Generationally, it's an expected thing. And if you are not home, but you're at your friend's house, their family is going to church on Sunday. So it's just, it's not even a question or choice. It's just what it is. So, you know, and, and for those out there that say, well, I don't think my family was toxic or abusive. We're not trying to put that on everybody. But for those where there was a lot of, you know, manipulation, a lot of gaslighting, a loss of agency, a loss of choice and things of that nature going on in the household um, and the religious environment was in, infused in that. It's just kind of can make a big issue for a lot of us growing up and I grew up in, in, in the church and my parents were very religious. And so every decision that was made, every decision was filtered through the religion. And so having a narcissistic parent and a narcissistic family system on top of that, it made it even harder. And so it kind of set me up to believe, you know, that anything the spiritual authority in, in church later on in life would say or do, I am to believe it because I was taught indirectly that every authority figure is right. And in order to survive, I must obey. You know, I learned a lot of naivete in my family structure, in my family home. I did not know a lot. And therefore I had more of a learned helplessness and a dependency, a codependency on leaders and on a spiritual environment because this is what I was used to growing up. And I just believed whatever leaders would say God said and things of that nature. I didn't question it. I didn't have the ability to critically think or to discern or reason or just say, you know what, what do I think about that? My, what do I think about that was suppressed. And that's what often what happens in a religious toxic family setting. And a lot of things that we learn from our parents it's filtered through how they use scripture, how they use the Bible, how they use Christian doctrine to enforce their unmet needs being met through us. And it was pretty difficult with that. And it just changed my whole church experience in and of itself, because that's what I wound up gravitating to. That's what was familiar to me. So I didn't see oh, this church, church is toxic. Even being in some of them for years, I knew I was going through things, but I couldn't see it as such because it was so familiar to, to what I came out of. I believe you brought up a pretty good point too, about when we grow up in these abusive homes, we're trained to suppress ourselves and to suppress mm -hmm. our own voice. And I know when I started to pursue vocation of ministry, I had already arrived at a place that the religion that I had grown up with, which was very overtly spiritually abusive and at the cult level, if I already knew there was something wrong with that. And so it was sort of on this like quest to find the real Christianity, right? but that voice and that, that ability to even a know what I wanted and know what my desires were. And then B to see those desires as good human things that had sort of been obliterated, which meant it took a very long time to realize that there was something wrong with the church mm -hmm. itself. And I had multiple churches that I worked for one chronic situation of spiritual abuse that then led me to see that literally every church I worked for was abusive in some way. 
I'm just going to skip over a little bit of that part of like how we came to understand if you, if you all want to fill in how that happened and your answer to the next question, feel free. But I want to move into when you realized that the church that you were in, and this is assuming I know (laughs) that we all did realize that the church that we were in was abusive. When you came to that place, how did the fact that you grew up in an abusive home, how did knowing you were in an abusive church impact you because you'd already gone through this? And I will just go ahead and start with it. Just knowing what I went through and how much work I had done in and recovering from an abusive upbringing and the years in therapy and the unpacking and deconstructing and all of the things that I had done when I came to that slow dawning of something is wrong with this church. There were so many emotions, but I remember despair. I remember being like, I know what this costs. And I know I am in a situation right now, not that I'm where I am being re-traumatized, but I'm actually being traumatized in real time. I am being abused in real time. And I know how much work it takes. I know the damage because I've been healing from it for a decade at that point. And shit, it's going to start all over again. Mm-hmm. I remember that feeling. And so I'll let y'all, y'all fill in how, how that showed up for you when you realized you were in an abusive church. For me, I feel like it was kind of a, sort of a multi-step process, I guess, later in my time at my church, I was working with women who were in abusive relationships because in my childhood, I witnessed domestic violence regularly. That was part of the abuse that I endured in my narcissistic family system. And so I'd started doing that work. And when I did not see the response from the church that should have been there, that was when like everything started to crumble for me of realizing that, oh my goodness, this place is not as safe as I thought it was. So that safety net I thought I had, I was starting to question, is, is it there? Is it going to hold, if it can't hold these women, can it hold me? Can it hold the other women in our church? It was. Are you referring to you're working with women who are in abusive relationships? The church was not responding to that abuse. Well, is that what you mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. And that just started to cause me to feel very unsafe in that place and bring up a lot of feelings from my childhood. And I had been, you know, in therapy at this point for years and had come a long way. in, like you were saying, working through a lot of the things that had happened to me in childhood. And then it was just this dread of like, oh no, is this family unsafe? Is this family that I thought was going to be my like forever family? Is, is this family unsafe? And from there, you know, long story short, we end up leaving. And that's where the trauma came in for me was the second loss. And I hung on for a long time because even though there were multiple things that, you know, I had issues with, whether it was 
the mishandling of abuse or whether it was just theological and not lining up there, whatever it was, I hung on for a long, long time. Well, one was because of this strong family language and like, we're all a family. We don't give up on each other. There was this emphasis on unity and keeping unity and not disrupting that. And so I tried for a long time and I raised a lot of concerns and also just the raising of concerns and not feeling heard. Like that echoed a lot from my childhood of just constantly being like, Hey, I see something here. Hey, listen to me. I feel this and just not being heard or seen. So there were just many experiences like that, that I was like, oh my God, you know, this place is not what I thought it was. And it was the aftermath of that for me, that was so impactful because I had at that point been in therapy over a decade, was in a really, really good place, was starting to make my way out on my own to become someone who helped other people with traumatic backgrounds was in this really, really good place. And then we ended up having to leave and it pretty much re-triggered all of my PTSD from childhood. It felt exactly the same as when I had to separate from my biological family. I dipped back down into anxiety and depression. Like I had never experienced before it destabilized me in so many ways. And it was a fracturing again of my life. And there, yeah, there were so many emotions around that intense grief intense anger over what I had seen happen, what had happened to me and anger over the fact that this happened, that I had to walk through this again and go back into therapy again and have another trauma to work through. And I know we can't always control the things that happen to us in life, but yeah, there was a lot of intense emotion and then the way it impacted my spiritual life. And I'm still recovering from that and still trying to figure out what do I believe? Because like Nikki's talked about, like you've mentioned, when you grow up in a space where you have no voice, you just have to blindly obey authority and you have to do it to survive and you know no other way. And then to me, that happened again. It happened all over again in a place in my life where I was, I was feeling confident, like I'm discovering who that true self is. I am starting to like live in that place. And I found this amazing career that I want to do. I've never felt more myself. And then all of a sudden the rug is pulled out from underneath me again, because I realized how much of my identity I had built around my church. My whole entire life was revolving around it. My entire sense of self was wrapped up in it. And so it left me in a place where I kind of had to almost start all over again and figuring out who, who am I apart from this now? And yeah, and that's still, you know, a journey that I'm on as we record this. So I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, it did. And it, it reminded me too of, and I don't know if I'll put this in the denial category, but I know that when I was leaving in the process of leaving and I'd gotten to a place where I'm going to end up leaving this abusive church and I was working for the church. So it was my job as well. So I couldn't just be like, peace out. Like I had to have something in place. And I interview. I did interviews with other churches for like many, many months, like dozens and dozens of interviews. And, and I found myself withdrawing from interview processes pretty quickly because I just started to see these things that I had learned from this, this church that I was in and like seeing these signs that I, I hadn't seen before because of the, of what I went through in this abusive church and like, like, oh, this isn't just like a, this church has a problem. 
it's like there is something wrong with what wider evangelicalism because I'm seeing these same signs and these same patterns in these other places. And I, w- I don't know if I want to call it denial, but <laughs> just like, oh no, it's just this church. It's just this church. Just this church is bad. Other churches are fine. But then I just had to come to this realization that like all of these other churches that I've been were also, there was also something wrong with them as well. And just the, the reeling and the basically like an earthquake of, of belief systems of just like what is, what is going on? <laughs> like what is happening? And then a lot of just like internal, like it was helpful to go through the, those uh, interviews with other churches because I felt like I had chosen as Nikki mentioned, my unmet needs had chosen this abusive church and that it was my problem. But then when I went through this, like you know, all of these churches that I interviewed with, and I started to see the other things in the other churches, I was able to, to, to say, oh, it's actually not me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. There are things that I have in my life and trauma that I have in my life and unmet needs that I have in my life that, that made me want to be a part of this church in the first place that I don't think are necessarily wrong or bad or shameful. I think they're very human And I think that this system was set up to exploit it inadvertently or advertently cannot say at this point, but, but the systems have been set up to exploit those needs from people. Nikki, how did, how did your upbringing impact how you interacted with it, with the community when you found out it was abusive? Well, you just said a lot. So I have. I can't just like ignore what both you ladies were just (laughs) highlighting. I'm like, oh my goodness. But like how you said, you realized it wasn't just you. It was the system. And as a, I don't want to say a professional cult topper. That's funny for me, but that may not be funny for someone else. But as someone who did this quite often, what I had to realize is that two things could be true at the same time, Right the system in and of itself can be abusive and toxic and, and, and wanting a whole lot of things to be repaired and changed if they want to go down that route. And, or I could also have some developmental trauma from my upbringing that was yet unprocessed simultaneously connecting with toxic system. And I had to understand that because a lot of times in this happened to me too. I spent a lot of time raging against the machine, which is necessary. And I highly encourage it. Let that anger out. But because I did not process a lot of developmental trauma from my family upbringing, I wasn't even conscious of it. So that's why I didn't process it. I was still going through a revolving door from one cult to another cult, from one toxic church to another toxic church. And that wasn't processed. So after the final cold and I really started to dig deep, I realized, wait a minute, both can be true. I can understand about a narcissistic, a spiritual leader. I can understand about the system that's toxic and what it looks like and what it smells like and how it operates. And I can also start to look at myself and start to identify some unmet needs, some maladaptive coping behaviors that I was you know, engaging in unknowingly. And that actually helped me to see it from a bigger aerial view versus it's just this, because if it's this, then it can't be that. What we went through was not our fault. 
it, it was not our fault. You're right. It was not us. It should have never happened to us. That's true. Simultaneously, we've just been through a lot of shit in our family and on our church family. That was not our fault either and still needs to be processed. Whether we actually went down that road with these churches or not, a lot of that still needs to be processed. And so understanding that both can be true helped to, to recover. But when it came to me and how I, I saw all of this, like because this was so familiar to what I grew up in, it took me a long time to become aware. That word awareness is so potent to me. I don't look at that as just some flipping word. It's so true because a lot of people choose to walk around and not see. A lot of people don't see because they don't have the tools to see. But when we see, oh boy, you know, that shock and that terror to what was I just in? What did I think I signed up for as opposed to what I signed up for? Like the shock of it all. And so the very first cult outside of my family dynamic, which is a whole nother conversation that I was a part of, when I left that, I found a lot of spiritual language, okay? A lot of language in the Bible that let me realize, okay, this was not right. I didn't quite yet get to the word abusive, toxic. It was all spiritual language. And it helped to give me the why I went through what I went through. And it was enough to be like, okay, but I did not understand. I still did not label this as toxic behavior, as narcissistic behavior, as cultic behavior. So I kept going and I went to the next church and the next church in copy and paste. It wasn't until my last cult that I was in about seven and a half, eight years ago, when I came out, the shock was just on me. Insomnia, I couldn't sleep. You know, they talk about, you know, complex PTSD. A lot of people have it. You want to hear a weird symptom that I had? And to this day, I sit here like, what? I was, my nervous system was so jacked up. I was not sleeping. And I was a single parent raising my teenage daughter at the time. And she went through majority of the cults that I was into. So that was a whole nother story. And still working and everything. And my hair smelled for like months. And I'm talking about, I would literally wash it all the time. I would go and get it professionally done. She couldn't understand why it was. I oh, would wash wow. It. I've never heard it. of that she, symptom yes. before. He used <gasps> all of this special stuff. And even when she finished my hair, you could still smell it. I've heard that our hair can carry trauma. That's yes. why like, we get that desire to cut our hair after yes. we've been through like a breakup or a traumatic experience. Because I, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of why that is, but Me I neither. and you know. I mean, obviously I didn't know what was wrong because this never happened in prior, you know, environments that I left, but the depression, the insomnia was so real, the hypervigilance because I lived down the street from my cult leader, mm. the last cult and his children and my child went to the same school. We often carpooled together. And so, you know, I would run into him picking up his kids and you know, I would have, you know, the shock reaction in this, and which is kind of, then I was having all these crazy nightmares. It's, I'm not going to go into all that, but it, it, it was intense for the first, I would say six to eight months. And I had nobody to unpack it with. And then I thought I was crazy because I started to realize like the curtain started to be pulled back. And I'm like, Nikki, not again, you've been through this. You should know. Why did you not know? How could, you know, and I just, 
the self-blame and shame that I had, because again, my fifth cult, why did I not know this? But I would say the difference between that and what's different now, like, again, when I tried to reach for the why and understanding what I've been through, it was all in the spiritual bubble. I find books on, you know, religious leaders or legalism and everything like that. And that held me for a minute, but it wasn't enough to give me full understanding. It wasn't until I uh, breached that bubble and actually connected with things outside of the religious bubble. And I started understanding my first book was Stephen Hassan, Freedom of the Mind. And he started talking about um, mind control and cults. And I just went crazy on watching a lot of his videos. And all of a sudden I'm like, this makes sense. This makes sense. And I would watch some more stuff. And then eventually it got down to, okay, these are some of the susceptibilities for people that find themselves in this. And I'm like, and if it felt clean, I didn't feel like, oh man, I'm going to blame myself. It's like, Eureka, I got the answer. Okay, it's not me, but I have some junk there too. So let's work this junk out. Let's see who the narc leaders are. Let's identify them. And I started to get excited for finding out the why, because I could not understand why I kept repeating this pattern. And like I said earlier, it's great to get that education and you can live in a vortex of the, the cult leader, the narcissistic pastor, the toxic church and rage against the machine. And I did that for a second, but my real freedom and healing started to un unfold when I took that thread and I moved it past all those church experiences and opened that door. And it led to all the family system dynamic. And then I started putting things together. And I said, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And it was hard because it's like, I don't want to unpack that. This is heavy enough. But then I realized if I unpack this, what will it look like? Will I get my autonomy back? Will I find out who Nikki really is outside of the narcissistic parent, the church leader saying you're this, all the prophecies, all the you are this and you are that I get to find me, you know? And so that helped me a ton, but because I was so ingrained to believe that love and abuse were supposed to go together. Right. And I learned that in my family dynamic, I learned that in how my family approached Christianity and approached the Bible and which scriptures honor thy father and mother, you know, for this is right. You know, all these scriptures that if a parent wants to raise their kids that way, may not be anything wrong with it, but you take a scripture like that and you put it in the hands of a toxic family. And those scriptures are used to do a lot of damage you know, obey your parents because you, you belong to the Lord. This is right to do. So if you have a toxic parent, an abusive parent, and they're coming to you and asking you to do things that are very harmful to you, but you've already been indoctrinated with, I got to obey God and obeying God is obeying my parents. So all of a sudden that philosophy becomes marred. And now it's on the same, it's the same coin with different sides. Obeying God means obeying my authority figures, no matter what they ask. And that starts the pattern of allowing these leaders to just say whatever, and we become subservient and submissive, and we follow the leaders, and we don't buck the system, and we don't critically think, and we don't question because of that 
beginnings, that schema that was developed in the beginning and it, it creates this whole pattern where, where we function out of that. So the shattering, kind of almost like how Sarah described it. And now I have to put the pieces of the puzzle together but not even use those same pieces. I have to totally find new pieces because none of them fit anymore. And I didn't have a blueprint on how to put the old pieces together again. Like Nikki, the old version had to literally die. And I struggled with that for a while. Eventually you have to, and I let go and I allowed the new version to be reborn. And I love this version way better than the old. Have I lost family and friends and a tons of relationships? Some people don't even speak to me anymore because of how I am now. Yeah, I did. Does that hurt? It still sucks. But guess what? I found me. Oh, so true. So true. And part of the indoctrination from these communities is if you leave, everything is going to fall apart. They don't tell you that things fall apart before you leave. And then once you leave, yes, there's a continual... And I'm not going to downplay the pain of losing people that you thought were your friends and losing people that you thought you could trust. It sucks. But to find yourself and to be able to do things that you enjoy and not have to feel that shame, that is huge. And that that's a part I think that we don't talk about enough as like the, just the freedom that you like experience on the, I was talking to someone the other day of like, talking about Sunday mornings being this, like, used to be this thing that like kind of caused anxiety. Now is like, oh man, I love my Sunday morning. <laughs> hey, 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 that's right. I go to brunch with someone. I sleep. It's great. <laughs> Sunday mornings are amazing. But the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. As a sort of follow-up question for both of you, I know that as I am healing from the abusive church, the the healing from the family of origin is not complete. It wasn't like, oh, I completed that healing and then suddenly this abusive church thing, and then now we're working on the abusive church thing. They're very intermingled with each other. Right. They're right. typically, <laughs> typically now if I'm in like a trauma response, there's it's, it's, it can be like a more memories of the church or more memories of the family of origin, but often there are like two things, like it came from family of origin and it also came from the church experience. Mm-hmm. How, what has that experience been like for you? The, the healing experience been like for you? How, how much do both the family of origin and the church experience, are you working through both of those things simultaneously? Well, before I answer that. I was wondering if I could like jump in with one more thought, kind of relating to what we were talking about before. I was just sitting here listening and I'm thinking, you know, when we tell these stories to people, whether they're still in the church or they're, they are wherever they're at, I think a lot of people, and we may have touched on this earlier, 
or like, oh, that, that was just your experience. Like you experienced an abusive household. So like, yeah, this makes sense that this would be your experience. And I feel like a lot of the time the voices of trauma survivors get discounted of like, you, of course you would see these things happen. Because you're already traumatized. Right. Because you're yeah. already traumatized. And so you're kind of biased. I, I experienced that when I was in the church of people getting concerned and almost kind of in, infantilizing me and being like, oh, you're like, Sarah, you've experienced some bad things. So like, you're going to overly see these things. And I just want to say that that's not the case at all. In my opinion, my experiences inform my expertise. So Yes, we have been through things, but it gives us a stronger way of sensing it. One of my friends calls it my spidey sense. Like we can sense these things. We can see patterns. We, you know, a lot of trauma survivors or people that grew up in homes with trauma are highly sensitive people. And that's not a bad thing. That's a strength. And so I would just ask listeners who may be a little skeptical or just might say, well, oh, like, sorry, you were hurt by the church. Think about that a little bit more deeply and please don't discount our voices um, in that way. And also along those lines, like I think we've touched on this a lot, trauma, you don't have to necessarily have grown up in an abusive home to have adverse experiences that might set you up for this same kind of relationship with religion. And so I like, I think about the ACEs score, like the ACEs test, adverse childhood experiences, you know, 61% of the population has experienced at least one and 16% have four or more. So that's just something to consider when you're thinking about how like trauma intersects with your trauma can well. be from other places. It doesn't necessarily places. have to be an abusive family. That's a very yeah. good point. Very helpful yeah. point. And something for church leaders to take into account too. And, and I know that's probably like a whole other podcast episode, but I just wanted to put that little caveat in there. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But yes, I would love to hear from you both about how, how the healing process from the church and the family, what that looks like now for you in the, in the aftermath. Yeah. So as far as like healing goes, like I shared earlier, you know, I had started to, I, I was in therapy for a long time for my childhood abuse before I ended up leaving the church. So, and that was very helpful for me. It was pretty transformation, like transformational life changing, woke me up to a ton of things and enabled me to see what was going on around me. So that was definitely very, very helpful when it came to the religious trauma, of course, going back into therapy, but a lot of the things you're talking about, Catherine, like rediscovering yourself were super helpful. So I started taking dance. And dance is, you know, very somatic thing where you have to connect to your body. I tend to be all in my head, very cerebral. I want to analyze everything, figure it all out. Why did this happen to me? And, you know, I read a lot of books and I would recommend that too. I'm not saying that's bad. There were a lot of books that really helped me, but doing those things like going to dance class where I had to kind of get out of my head and connect to my body. And it gave me this artistic expression really, really helped and just Undoing the belief that taking care of myself was wrong, that it was selfish, that, you know, I had to always come last and it was always like, you know, others and God first, and that the divine can be integrated into all of those self-care practices. If I want them to be, that really, really helps. So just working through not feeling guilty for 
taking the time and giving myself a lot of time, a lot of rest of just resting and not feeling bad about that either. And knowing that this is going to be a slow process and reminding myself that like, I've survived this once before and I, I, I've survived and I can do that again. Like this is not going to obliterate me. It's not going to, you know, fracture my life to the point that I can't put those pieces back together and just finding joy again and finding joy in those little, those little glimmers of hope along the way of, of recovery. Like to me, it felt like, like I was on the space station and there had been like an explosion and a hole was ripped in the, like the space station. And I was floating out in space untethered. Like, I don't know who I am. I don't have anything to anchor me anymore. And so it was really scary at first when like I experienced like leaving and you feel like no one's out here with me. I'm just floating here alone. I don't know who God is. I don't know who I am. And it can be very isolating. But when I started to kind of head in that direction of healing, of working on healing, you know, you begin to see like the stars around you, maybe somebody throws you a tether and you can kind of come back. And it's not the same as it was before, but like Nikki was saying, I feel much more myself than I've ever been in my life. And that's the beauty of it. There is something beautiful about the journey when we can take our time and we actually own it. It's not something that's rushed through. There's no formula that I can reach out to Catherine like, okay, Catherine, I just came out of some spiritual abuse. You got the one, two, three, four, five to-do list that I can do and I can just be all jazzed up and be good. Catherine, as a trauma recovery coach, may say, yeah, Nikki, I got a little formula. Here's the formula. Thanks, Kat. And I go take it and try to work it. I may be a little bit better, but I miss that opportunity to connect with myself, to find myself, to understand and, and sift through, okay, I was taught this. This was not right. This was actually abusive. And like I said, two things can be true at the same time. Some people have come out of environments where your family members, your parents, they may love you, but their version of love is love mixed with abuse because somebody taught them that too. So understanding that, okay, I'm taking that watch off. I'm healing. I mean, I'm going to enjoy this journey. Is it a lot of tears? Is it a lot of heartache? Is it a lot of grief? Yes. But as I do it and not look for quick formulas and connect with it, there's a beauty like a, a butterfly coming out of the cocoon and having colors on its wings. I want my colors. I've been through a lot of hell in my life. I want my colors. And like I said earlier, that learned helplessness that comes from those families of origin and then sometimes it's brought into the toxic church environment, which breeds codependency a lot of times. So everybody had the pen to my story in these church environments. Oh, you're going to write chapter six? Here's the, my pen for my life. Go ahead and write chapter six. Then I read through it like, whoo, this is a bad chapter. Well, they had the pen. I didn't know. I have the pen now. Guess what? The rest of the book is going to be phenomenal, right? So coming into that mindset, but I'm not going to paint a picture that is all rosy and great because it's not. To be honest right now, I'm still navigating a lot of uh, issues and traumas from my family of origin, especially because it's a narc family. And when it's a narc family, if you're not fully no contact and you're low contact, it is very exhausting. There are certain expectations. 
And then if it's a religious narcissistic family dynamic, then you have the expectation of, I think my mother just said to me the other day, like, well, you know, are you plan on going back to church soon? Like, it's been a while. Tick, 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 tick. I oh, took that much boy. off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she hasn't asked me that in years. And it came out of nowhere. And I was like, mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm ac- I said, I'm actually she holding good. on to that hope. I think so. She's like, well, what about your daughter? I'm like, she's 21. Shees fine. Like I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> she can make that choice. And I'm like, did you ask my brother? Yeah, you know, because he I was the scapegoat and he was the mm-hmm. golden child. So you know, I, I got a lot of that that heat. But it is a lot to still navigate simultaneously working through the the effects, the traumatic effects of religious abuse and thing and cult environment. but I don't, as a trauma recovery coach, I don't push my own healing aside. Like I am helping others out of the overflow of first trying to help myself, of first Mm -hmm. connecting with myself. So this work, internal work doesn't go away. I'm learning more about my inner child. I'm connecting more with my inner voice. I'm not afraid to go inside and see the good, the bad, and the hurt and the wounds, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say ugly, the hurt and the wounds and touch it so that eventually it can be healed. Absolutely. So as we're getting, getting down to the end of our time together, I want to ask one final question. That's kind of building off of what Sarah said earlier about trauma, giving us a little bit of a spidey sense of things going, going on. And it is what resources did you learn from your healing from your family of origin that then helped you navigate the church abuse experience. And so, so the resource that I feel like I had was very similar to Sarah's of just like, I had that feeling of something is off like pretty fast. And a lot of people made the comment about me when I was leaving the abusive church, because so many people had been in that church for like decades before they realized something was wrong and then left. And then it would took me two years and three months. And a lot of people were like, you figured it out really fast. And it was because I had seen this film before I had been through this experience before. And once I got past the, oh, it's just me and my trauma making this difficult. It, and I actually was like able to just surface and be like, oh, actually, no, this is I'm having a trauma response. It's not a trauma response. It's a survival response because I'm actually in an abusive system again. Just speaking up and naming it for myself, for other people saying like, no, this is not okay. No, this is not okay. No, this is not okay. And, and just, I remember having this thought multiple times of like, you picked the wrong person to mess with. Like this was not not a good idea to try and bring me into the system and then expect that I'm just going to shut up and take it. But I do remember having this, like, I am not going to shut up. I know what it's like to be silent. I am not going to do that. I am not going to do that in this situation. And telling one of my, I had three different bosses in the two years and three months that I was there. So that was an example of how toxic the place was. But I, in that, I remember like telling one of my bosses Like if I ever stop talking, you will know I'm on my way out. And I remember hitting the glass wall and finally realizing that my voice is not getting through. I am not, I'm not making any impact. Nobody is listening to me. And so deciding I'm going to, I'm going to shut up. Like it's not doing any good. I'm leaving. I'm out. I'm just, it's not a question of if it's a question of when. And I remember my body shutting down. And those four months between were done and turning in my resignation, 
I had migraines. I could not sleep. I threw up probably every single single day, thought it was allergies. It wasn't, it was anxiety. And I, and my body was just, it was like, like the drug addict who has like a certain tolerance and then they go into recovery and then they try to go back to the same dosage that they were at before they went into recovery, but their body is not used to that. It doesn't have the same tolerance. And that's where the OD happens. I, I was like, it was like my body OD'd on, on silence, on, on just shutting down. And I would say that that was a potentially just a good thing. It was like, my body was just like, like, no, 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 no. Like we don't do this anymore. We don't, we don't shut up anymore. We don't, we don't do this anymore. And I think one of the things that I just had learned from my family of origin, healing from my family of origin experience was I need to exercise my agency, even if it's just in small ways, when these things happen and I feel like I am powerless or I feel like my voice is being silenced, I need to, I need to exercise my agency. I need to do something with this. I need to be able to make these little decisions to, to, to show that I do, I do matter in this situation, even if everyone around me just wants me to shut up. Yeah. Kind of a copy off of, of Sarah and kind of you, Catherine. And it just made me, I want to cry sitting here listening to you. And just like, even when we're done, I'm going to kind of take the day and honor the growth of my discernment or my spidey sense. Cause that was a big thing that I feel like was taken from me or perverted in my family of origin, my ability to feel like something was up, my ability to smell BS. And a lot of that was suppressed because my family did not want to deal with reality. They wanted, they didn't want to see what things really were. So when I would pick in, because being a highly sensitive person and an empath, when I would pick it up and I would say something, my voice got suppressed. My inner flags, red flags going off got suppressed. And so they li- I lived like that for a big chunk of my life. And this is why when I would be in toxic relationships with people and communities and churches, my spidey sense would go off, but I would turn it off. I would turn it down. I didn't want to hear it because I believe it's me. Something's wrong with me. They are more spiritual. They are the authority figures. Clearly, I can't be, I can't be discerning this rightly. And so that kept me connected to so many potential perpetrators and people who were abusive. I kept turning the volume down. Now the volume is all the way up. And when I start to sense something now, I don't turn it down. I pause. I say, wait a minute, this smells familiar. This feels familiar. Nikki, don't ignore that feeling. Embrace it. And my mind will say, but we don't have any evidence that something's wrong. And that's what used to happen. And I would keep going because I didn't have the evidence. Now I allow that feeling to say, wait, pause. Don't judge. Let's pause. Let's wait. Let's observe. So now I will observe and I'll pick it up and then I start to trust my gut. I don't ignore the spidey sense or the inner wisdom that's alerting me something's not right. I then observe, I question, I critically think. I don't, I no longer say it's just me. I say something's alerting me that something's not right and I'm going to lean into that. And to me, that is a big part of my rehabilitation and my recovery process. Because for many years of my life, I'm 45 and big chunk of those years, 
I always gave into, it's me. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not holy enough. I can't measure up to these men and women of God. So clearly I'm in the wrong and I need to work it out and confess and forgive and all this other stuff like that. But now, no, I saw boo-boo and his boo-boo will show up eventually. And when I hold to that, I don't, I'm not paranoid looking for it, but when I hold fast, to, I know I smelled it in here. Sure enough, you'll pull back the cover in the back door in the back room and there it is. And I just say, Nikki, you're growing in your discernment and this is a good thing. And I'm reclaiming that. And so that's one of my resources. I relate to everything both of you have said. And yeah, especially that healing is a lifelong process and that concept of honoring your body, honoring that body sense, that intuition is really strong for me because I too felt like when I was in both of these places, family of origin and religious system, it was like, I was holding back a dam of things that my body was trying to tell me. And I was just kind of, you know, for whatever reason, not listening, kind of holding it back, feeling it and doubting it because maybe, you know, like you're saying, Nikki, like I'm, I'm not like these super spiritual people or being told that like every thought feeling and intuition I had was sinful or possibly sinful or linked to some sort of idol or false belief I had or something like that, you become completely disconnected from yourself. And so slowing down enough to listen, to honor my body and what it's trying to tell me was huge for me. Also, you know, one of the, the, you know, gifts we didn't ask for, but I think we've received from being in these environments is developing like a highly sensitive way of of compassion with other people. Like we're able to feel others' feelings really easily. And in some ways like that can get us into some, you know, complicated spaces too. But the good parts of that and our ability to give compassion to others and care for others was also learning that like, like I can give that to myself. And for me, one thing that's been huge, like in the last year or so, cause I'm only about a year out from all this. So I'm still at the very beginnings of my, you know, learning and healing journey was turning towards those parts of myself that I had been taught were, were bad or ugly, like a strong inner critic. I have a huge, strong inner critic that has been put there by these environments, but turning to that, that part of me with compassion and saying, like, I know why you're like, why you're here. Like you're trying to protect me. You're trying to keep me from shame or from making a mistake and, and turning to those parts of myself with compassion, my anxiety, my, the depression that wants to pull me down, just viewing myself in a more compassionate light and giving that compassion to myself that I so easily give to others. You know, I say to my daughter, when she's kind of in those spaces, like, would you talk that way to your best friend? You know, don't talk that way to yourself. Doing that work as well has been really, really helping me kind of move forward or move, I don't know if move forward is the right way to say it. Cause you know, healing is not a linear space, but I think you guys get what I mean of kind of progressing in, in that new way of thinking, because you really do have to reorient yourself again. So, so yeah, that's, that's been a big one for me, but yeah, I'm sure all three of us could sit here and talk about like, there's so many things. There's so much more, nuance and deepness and richness to a conversation like this, but that's the first one that came to my mind. That's fantastic. And I think that we do bring those resources with us. We do develop those resources as we are healing and it's not, the abuse is never okay, 
but there is just that resiliency that's that our our bodies are capable of in how much and I think you said it earlier Sarah of like I survived this once I can survive it again I remember having that that thought like yes there was despair of like what it's happening again but then also like I made it through I will make it through this too as we wrap up I don't want us to like have to just like cut us off. So just how are, how are you all doing right now? How are the emotions? How are you feeling? I mean, it's always good to talk to people that get it. And that's also been like highly, highly helpful. I know that when, you know, we come out of these spaces, we're often isolated, but if you can find people that get it, whether that's in person, online, it is so, so helpful. So just being able to sit here with both of you, people that I know are safe, that I can trust and have a space to kind of just process these things through is so incredibly helpful. And, and, you know, I, it helps me feel less alone in having these thoughts. So yeah, I feel lighter than (laughs) when I came in and thank you for the time, both of you and for always just your words of wisdom and care. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you. This is not a uncommon story. There's a, there's a lot of folks who are like us who were had these just gaps left in our lives from our families and wanted the church to be safe. And, and that was a good desire to want to find a community that was safe. That was not a a bad desire to have. It was a very good thing. We, we, we need connection, whether we grew up in an abusive home or not. And to have spaces that exploited that was really wrong and not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you're listening now and you're like, whoa, like I can relate to a little bit of what everybody's shared so far, like Catherine said, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have experienced this. And that gave me a little bit of, you know, boost to know, okay, I'm not alone, or I'm not quote unquote, crazy, like something happened to me, that does not mean something's wrong with me. Sure, there are behavior patterns that we that we develop because we tried to be safe. So if you feel like, oh, codependent I'm codependent like you were trying to stay safe you were Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to navigate your life after going through a lot of trauma in your family system and then experiencing it within the church as well you know I I like what Sarah said about the self-compassion part that's some of the hardest things for us to do because we've been indoctrinated that everything is our fault that it's it's we're wrong and to go on the other side of 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 the coin and say no it's something that happens to me and i did the best that i could to survive in what i went through absolutely and now i'm aware that i can move from surviving to eventually thriving and that's not a bad thing. It's actually a great thing. So if you're out there and, and, and this hurts, hopefully you can see it as, a, as also a form of hope. Tears of Eden exists to help a lot of survivors that have been through things of that, that nature. So, you know, sign up for the next support group that we have going on and have a lot of events coming up next year to help service those who have been through some of the things we've been through. You know, we are your peers and we understand. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.